Well, good evening. We are continuing in Titus, chapter 2. And um, where we left off last time. And we are um, as soon as I get there, I lost my spot. There we go. Um, tonight we're continuing in chapter two of Paul's letter to Titus with instructions for uh, the churches on the island of Crete. And just as a reminder, that island splits the Aegean and the Mediterranean Sea, about 150 miles south of mainland Greece. Um, and we come tonight um, to the beginning of a large portion of Scripture that includes the rest of chapter 2 and most of chapter 3. Maybe we could turn the mic down a little bit. It sounds a little loud to me, but... Yeah, I know that was bothering you. <laughs> so we'll get to the, the rest of chapter 2 tonight, and except for the very last verse, but that'll be taking us into chapter 3 next time. Um, and there's a heavy gospel theme and steady reminders to Christians to be about the business of doing good works uh, as a result of the gospel. And Paul presents this um, gospel theme as a natural outflowing or, uh, or a justification for why people should live godly uh, and upright lives as Christians. And we spent the last two sessions looking at what the Word of God says about how each person is to live godly in this world. And if, if the people were to ask Titus why they should, or if we were to ask the question, why should I live this way, Paul gives the answer in this text tonight. And it's no, it's no surprise answer. It's not for a reason that Titus and the Cretan Christians didn't already know. And it is no reason you and I haven't heard before as well. But Paul says it anyway, and in fact, goes into great detail. And this passage is a picture of the work of the gospel in the lives of sinners that God has saved. And it is informative about who God is, about what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do in the future. And it's informative as to how the people, including you and I, should uh, be believing and responding, considering these things. And this passage informs our motivation for good works. It reminds us that God is very purposeful in what he's doing, and that we are his tools for righteous living that bring glory and honor to him while we're still here. Um, so I want to read out this section tonight, uh, starting in verse 11 and going through verse 14 in chapter 2 of Titus, and then we'll uh, open with a word of prayer. So starting in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for this evening. Thank you for your word that we can uh, read tonight and study, uh, that we can be reminded of who you are and what you have done for us and why we're still here and what the purpose is and what we're waiting for. We're so grateful, Lord, as we look forward to that. I pray you give us right thinking, right attitudes as Christians in this fallen world. May we be your ambassadors to the people around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we have seen uh, over the last couple of sessions, there are a lot of commands for God's people represented in the text that we've been looking through as older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and Titus himself, and then those who are slaves. And again, these commands assume the people in those categories are Christians. All right, that's who Paul is addressing here, not just every man in the world or every older man in the world or every older woman in the world. He's talking to Christians. He's writing to Titus, and these, this message is for those who are Christians. In fact, part of the reason for uh, obedience to these commands is the message it sends to the unbelieving world about God's people. As the scriptures say, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So what Paul has really been doing is telling Christians how to properly, properly be the representatives or ambassadors for Christ in this world. And let's be reminded what was commanded in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 for Christians. It's a long list, and some of it is overlapping and, again, assumes that, the that this is the behavior of all Christians, not just the ones specified. Um, they are not only to teach what accords with sound doctrine, but in this long list, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness. Older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. Younger women, to love their husbands, love their children, to be self-controlled, be pure, be taking care of the home, be kind, be submissive to their own husbands. Younger men, to be self-controlled. Titus, to be a model of good works in everything. Show integrity and dignity in your teaching. Be sound in speech. And slaves are to be submissive to their masters, be well-pleasing and not argumentative and not pilfering, to be faithful in everything. Why? Well, verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So do you see that? Do you see the connection between all those commands. In, in other words, why be obedient in all of those ways? Why? Because God has been so gracious. How? By saving us vile sinners. For what purpose? So he can train you to renounce ungodliness 
and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. When is the present age? Now, right? It, it was now in Titus's time, and it's still now in our time. That is the present age where we find ourselves. It's never going to not be the present age. As long as you live, it's the present age. So in, in I have a question then. What two aspects of the gospel do we see active in verses 11 and 12? In, in each, there's one in each verse. What aspects of the gospel do we see active in verses 11 and 12? What do you guys think? Salvation by grace, okay? Sure. What's the other one? We see sanctification there. Okay, we can see becoming more like Christ from day to day. We can see that the purpose here is sanctification. We can see our, our motivation and source of power for obedience and then the purpose or at least part of the purpose for which God saves and what he accomplishes by it. And these, are, these really are, for us Christians, some beautiful truths to be seen in this text, and we should not overlook them. The important role that they play in our understanding of why we're still here and, and what we're to be doing uh, about what God has done for us as we live among a lost and dying world. We shouldn't, we shouldn't let these words go. We should see the importance of them. We're seeing a progression in this, in this passage, and maybe we could call it a I don't know if we could call it a timeline for our lives and what is going on, but sort of. There's a progression here. Um, and this should help us make sense of things and remind us of what we're waiting for from God, what we're doing here, what we're waiting for. Um, he's done something. Okay? He's doing something, and he will do something in the future. It's kind of the, the flow of this. And the question is, where do we fit in with all that? Where do we fit in with his plans. The first thing we see here is God's grace working in salvation. Well, what role does grace play in salvation? It's kind of a, kind of a hard question, but I want to see what you guys think. What role does grace play in our salvation? What's that? The main one. There you go. Yeah, it, it's the means of our salvation, right? For by grace you have been saved, in Ephesians 2, 8. Um, it is the way that we are saved. Not as a result of works, that Ephesians passage continues. Um, and the Bible is clear on this. There are, are several this way and not that way passages that we can find in the scriptures, like that Ephesians 2 passage. I wanted to read a couple of them here. <clears throat> Romans 3, 20 and 24 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one 
will be justified. And Acts 15, 1 and 11. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus as they will. Okay, there's this, not this way, but this way. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, who, talking about Christ who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And then in our own text later, <clears throat> in, this, in this letter, Paul gets to the same point again in chapter 3, verse 5. He says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And this is a fundamental, basic, foundational, biblical truth about salvation. And Titus knows this. So why is Paul telling him something he's, he's already told him uh, and, and that Titus already knows? Okay, well, I think there's, I think, two reasons in particular. Titus is being commissioned by Paul, remember, uh, for the work of setting, um, the, setting up the leadership in the churches on the island of Crete, right? Putting elders in place. And this text is sort of a summary of the work of God in establishing his church. The first point of which uh, is that salvation has come by God's grace. Um, he is going to need to remind the people and the leadership of these facts. He must ensure that the elders that he installs understand this and believe this to be true and that they're not of the other group who would add something else to salvation. And the second reason, I think, like us, the early church, including Titus, are a people who are prone to forget foundational things in the face of difficult lives, right? The difficulties of life can cause us to um, forget, right? Cause us to put our focus on something else. And by difficult lives, I mean all the unpleasant and ugly results of ongoing sin that we all experience. Um, that's what makes life difficult, what makes it so burdensome sometimes. So the second point is that the gospel is for Christians as well. Right? The gospel isn't just for you in salvation and then you never need to hear the gospel again. We as Christians need to hear the gospel over and over again. Titus needed the encouragement of this truth as would his hearers and as do you and I. We need this encouragement. We need to be reminded what God has done. So it's not about telling him something he didn't know. It's about reminding him. It's about the encouragement that comes with that remembrance. And what about that second aspect of the gospel that we mentioned, sanctification? We need to see this, that, that God's grace has brought salvation and not, not taken us up to heaven, but set us on a different path here on earth. Okay, clearly, obviously, we're still here. Right, this path is one of sanctification. It's one of separateness from every other person on the planet. There should be that much of a difference between us and the unbelieving world. And this is for the purpose of making us obedient to the word of God and to draw others to God. And we have all of those commands to obey that, that Paul listed out here. 
<clears throat> in that process, and by God's grace, he's training us. That's why we're here. He's, he's training us. Sanctification is God's training ground for Christians. Well, what can we learn from the Bible then about some of the means that God uses to train us? What are some of the means God uses to train us that you know about in Scripture? Trials. Absolutely, he uses trials. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He uses trials. What else? Let's see if you guys get the same list I have. Well, the Word of God, okay, he uses the Word of God. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Okay, so God uses his word in that process. What else? What was that? Prayer. Sure, our, our reliance upon God, uh, the, the fact that we can come to him with our anxieties, right? And, and he will give us the peace that passes all understanding. What are other means God uses? What was that? The Spirit, absolutely, right? Galatians 5, 22 and 23, you talk about the fruits of the Spirit. Those are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. Okay, these are all things that the Spirit does, the work that the Spirit does in the lives of believers in this process of training, of sanctification. What else? What was that? Okay, rebuke, right? Correction. Um, see, I think I have that on here. Well, I probably called it something else. Well, I'm going to look at the people of God. How about that? Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. All right, in Galatians 6, 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. He uses the people of God in rebuke, right? What else? How about the consequences of sin? To use that in our lives? We feel that, right? In Deuteronomy 8, 2, it says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Why were they wandering in the desert? Because they sinned. And God's using that. He uses false teachers, false prophets. Deuteronomy 13.3, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. He tests us with those things. He uses affliction. Isaiah 48.10, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. He uses suffering. 
Romans 5.3, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance. 1 Peter 4.19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God uses all kinds of things in our lives to train us, to teach us, to test our faith. And what is the results? What are the, what are the results of this testing? We see it in James 1, 3, and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. That sounds like preparation, right? That sounds like getting us ready. And that's the point of what Paul wrote to Titus about God's grace in training them. What is he training them to do? Verse 12 in our text in Titus 2 says it is to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We, we need to be trained for this. It is not our natural way of doing things. We, we naturally go the other way. God needed to change us by his grace and salvation. And now he's training us to renounce those things and to live differently. And we learn to live these ways by all the means that God uses. All those things we listed out, and there's probably more, that God uses to train us, to teach us to renounce those things and to live rightly. And it's not always pleasant. Right? How often is it unpleasant, the way that God determines to train us? Um, we don't, it's definitely not always our first response to be grateful for God's testing and the, and the trials that we have in our lives. But what does it do it yields fruit. Those things yield fruit. Hebrews 12, 11 says, For the moment all discipline, which in this context is training, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And how many of us want the peaceful fruit of righteousness in our lives? We should want that. Um, and we can probably look back on our lives and see how God has trained us. Even the most unpleasant things we've been through, we can look and see what God was doing through that. And he says to renounce ungodliness. We're being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And that idea of renouncing, it means to say, say no to them, to reject them purposefully, to turn away from them and turn toward righteousness. It's something we must choose to do, but something that is empowered by the Holy Spirit within us. It's not something we would choose apart from Christ, and the Holy Spirit is not something we could do apart from Christ and the Holy Spirit. So God empowers us to do that. Um, and, and so renouncing ungodliness, renouncing worldly passions uh, is the opposite of what we should be doing, which is to live self-controlled lives um, of uprightness and godliness. First Timothy 6.6 6 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. 
that is something we should desire. And it should be considered in our lives and in our thinking as great gain to be godly and to be content. And now we talk about worldly passions. Worldly passions are just that. They are worldly. They are not from God. They are not godly. These are desires for things that we are not permitted to have. Right? It, it doesn't even require that we get the thing or participate in the thing. So then we must ask ourselves the question, is it sinful, me, is it sinful for me to desire what is sinful? What do you think? Is it sinful to desire what is sinful even if you don't get the thing? Yeah, it is. It's called evil desire. The Bible calls it evil desire. Is, is all desire evil? No. Okay, but there is such a thing as evil desire. And Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We are to put those to death. It is sin. So we're to put that sin to death in us, and it is idolatry. And so merely desiring something sinful is sinful in and of itself. We need to have that understanding. That we can't be okay with desiring sinful things. Well, what are some examples of worldly passions or evil desires? What do you guys think? Money. Is it evil to, where does that switch over from I work for money to being an evil desire? Loving it, okay, sure. Coveting, we talk about coveting, right? To desire what someone else has, no matter what it is. It could be money, it could be other things. To desire what someone else has, that's coveting, that's sinful. Um, sexual lusts, and that's typical, typically what can come to mind. Uh, there are all kinds of sexual lusts. Someone, not your spouse, someone else's spouse, someone of the same sex, which the world calls same-sex attracted. Okay, we're we're actively in our culture trying to make things okay that the scripture says are not okay. Uh, to desire to mutilate your body, you know, a transgendered persons with supposed sex change operations, you know, it's, it's bodily mutilation. Uh, it's, a, it's an evil desire. To desire a sexual relationship with a minor. Now the world is, many are trying to call this minor attracted persons, right? The, the, the word pedophile is taboo now. We don't want to label somebody if that, so... We'll call it minor attracted persons. It's less offensive. Uh, they're making it, trying to make a distinction between the act, acting upon something, and the desire for something. But we know scripturally, we have to be clear that that desire is an evil desire. Okay, is it sinful for me to steal? Yes. Is it sinful for me to desire to steal? Yes. 
Is it sinful for me, for me to gossip? Yes. Is it sinful for me to desire to gossip? Yes. Is it sinful for me to engage in sexual sin? Yes. Is it sinful for me to desire to engage in sexual sin? Yes. Okay, and this is not necessarily about a thought popping into one's head and then dismissing it, right? That's not really what we're talking about. This is about one dwelling on it, planning it, thinking about the enjoyment you would get from engaging in it. You see the difference there, right? It's really about lust, it's, which is most often tied to sexual sin, but there can be lust for other things as well. People often use the term lust for power, right? Uh, but there are, are other ways to lust besides just in sexual sin. The desire for sin, the desire for sin is to be killed in our lives. We should not want that. We should not want evil desires in our lives. Um, when, when are we to be renouncing these things? Yeah, when they come into your mind. As soon as they're there, we, we get rid of them. We don't want them. We need to think about godly things. We need to focus on Christ, focus on his word. I don't want those things. I don't want to act on those things. I don't even want to think about those things or, or possibly desire those things. And so whenever they pop up, and the scripture here in our text tells us that's in this present age. In this present age is when we're to be acting on uh, killing sin and the desire for sin in our lives. This means as long as you and I are alive on this earth. Again, it was during the lifetime of Titus and his hearers, and it's during the lifetime of any Christian before and after you and I. During our lifetime, we're to be renouncing these things. And we're left here on this earth for a reason. To live this way by the power of God. To be made more like Christ. To show off the power of God. To, the power that he has to transform lives. And all for his glory. Again, it's not easy. Right? It is not always pleasant to be a Christian in a sinful world, whether in the face of our own ongoing sin or the sin of others, uh, the lives of Christians can't help but be marked by suffering. But, the scripture says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 1 Peter 5.10. That's encouragement in, in this dark world and the time that we're here and dealing with sin. That is encouragement. And the first century people could look at their own lives and look around them and know how sinful and lost the world was. Like us, they would perhaps wonder sometimes, why is all of this happening? Why, why are things so bad? You know, why... Why are people so evil? They treat each other so terribly. And Paul wants Titus to pass this on and remind the church that salvation has come to all people through the grace of God. And he is actively training us to renounce ungodly ways. 
Was that it? What else is there? Is there anything to look forward to, or is it just this? Is there a goal? What is the end of what God is doing? What do we look to during all of this testing and sanctifying and suffering? Well, verse 13 says, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What aspect of the gospel do we see in that verse? The second coming, right? Yeah. The second coming, the promise of Christ's return. Why is it important then that, that Paul puts this verse in here? How, how is it helpful to them? How is it helpful to you in this present age? Yeah, he's coming. Yeah, it's a reminder, right? It helps keep our focus in the right place. When everything that's going on around us wants to tell us something different, wants to tell us there's no hope, wants to tell us it's always going to be like this. It keeps our focus in the right place. This is talking about there's an eagerness in the Christian's life. There's an, an eagerness in waiting and expectation of the reality that Christ is coming. Right? There's nothing hoped for that has ever been or will be more hoped for and eventually realized than the coming of Christ. It is our great hope. Right. Yeah, we're to be ready. And that is, again what we're talking about, right? Being sanctified, more Christ-like. We are to be ready. We're to look forward to it. it. It is happening. And when we talk about hope in this sense, again, it's not a, a wishing it will happen. Right? It's, a, it's an eager anticipation for what you know will happen. It's a, it's a, a hope in that sense. And he reminds Titus that this is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior, God, right? I don't know about you, but when things are difficult, isn't a reminder that difficulty is almost over and a great reward is coming an encouragement? Isn't that an encouragement? <laughs> Absolutely. We do that for our kids all the time, right? Going on a long car ride, and they're like, are we there yet? You know, we know there's somewhere where we're going, and they have to endure this long car ride to get there. But when they get there, the car ride was worth it, right? That's the same way. This, when Christ comes, we'll look back at this and realize it was but a mist. It was such a short time in comparison to eternity that we'll have with Christ. It will all, what God is doing in our lives will all be worth it. So we all are to be strengthened by this, to be encouraged by this reminder of who Christ is, what he's done, what he's going to do. We all get this concept. Um, and he goes on in the next verse to expand the statement to remind Titus what Jesus did. Verse 14, talking about Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, 
what aspect of the gospel is present in that verse? Verse 14. He's our redeemer. Okay, we, see, we see the substitutionary atonement there, right? He gave himself for us. We see redemption. Christ purchased the church with his own blood. Galatians 1.4 says it was Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father. So we are not, we are not our own. We are slaves of Christ now and are used by him to do his will. And that is not a burdensome thing for us. It should not be a burdensome thing for us. And we should be instead zealous for good works. Not begrudgingly dragged, kicking and screaming, but in joy and as, honestly, as a natural outflow of the grace of God and our salvation. That should be our response to what God has done and being so gracious and kind to us. And this is a section of Scripture meant for Titus at just the right time and place. When he reads this letter to the people and gives them the commands to live godly and righteous lives, it is followed up with these very encouraging and hope-filled words. You can look at the whole first chapter and, and most of the second chapter and see all the difficult things going on, all the commands they have to follow, and then it's, it's followed by these Reminders. Remember who God is. Remember his grace and salvation. Uh, remember that he has redeemed us, that he has a purpose for us being here. He's training us to renounce ungodliness. Uh, these should all be encouraging words, and he's not done. He, um, when we continue the next time, he's not done. We'll see how the end of verse 2 and it travels into chapter 3, or end of chapter 2 travels into chapter 3. It's all connected with continuing words of encouragement, continuing reminders of the gospel and the graciousness and the kindness of God towards sinners. Uh, it, there's many, many encouraging words to come. Um, so we see how this all works together, uh, how these, these commands to behave a certain way are not just thrown out there, you know, floating around somewhere with no purpose. There is a purpose to them for you and I as Christians. And, uh, and that is God is training us um, to be more Christ-like. So we'll see that. We'll continue next time um, and see where he takes us from here. So let's close in prayer, and then we'll be able to visit and have some Q&A. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this night. Thank you, God, for, um, for these reminders of who you are and what you have done through Christ. Thank you for the different aspects of the gospel that we can see evident in these few verses. And that as we continue, we'll con we will see more of that. Lord, help us to understand, even as Christians who have been saved, that we have a need for reminders of the gospel. We need to be reminded how gracious and kind you were to us and how gracious and kind you are to us and what you're doing in our lives. May we agree with you, Lord. May we think godly about 
our trials, our suffering, our affliction, the things that you uh, bring into our lives, Lord, to train us. I pray that we would desire to be obedient to your word, that we would desire to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, that we would live upright, godly, and righteous lives for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And may we uh, bring honor and praise to your name because you are worthy, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.